Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Mark Massia from Massia Development. And if you want to learn how to develop your network better, you should be listening to Build Your Network Podcast with my good friend, Travis Chapel. Welcome back to the show. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know. If you agree, then keep on listening for tips on how to cultivate meaningful connections the right way. If you disagree, then tune in anyway to let me prove you wrong with my journey. My name is Travis Chapel, and this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey there, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of the Build Your Network Podcast. Today, I am really excited to bring on a buddy of mine, Mark Massia. Mark is the founder of Massia Development LLC, has over 17 years of real estate investment experience and a career portfolio valued at over $1.5 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B. Having two master's degrees from New York University and George Washington University, Mark is an adjunct professor at NYU's Institute of Real Estate and is passionate about sharing his knowledge with everyone that he meets. He's been studying his hero, Warren Buffett, for most of his life and truly believes in being transparent, honest, and ethical in order to bring his investors the best results. Mark and I talk a lot in this episode about some different things, and I'm always curious to hear from people like Mark who are highly educated what their thoughts on the value of going to college is. And so we definitely talk about that in this episode. Then we talk about how he went from having absolutely nobody in his portfolio to then building a company now that has a career portfolio over $1.5 billion, like how he made that transition from being in his early 20s to getting a bunch of people with a lot of money, like I'm talking hundreds of millions of dollars to trust him enough to head up investment projects and development projects in huge cities across the country. So we talk about how he was able to land some of those big clients 
experience and how he's able to get started into this in the first place. So there's a lot of amazing insights here. Even if you're not a real estate investor specifically, there's still going to be a lot of things in here about negotiation and persuasion, different things like that, that Mark was able to use early on in his career. And I promise that you're going to want to listen to that. But really quickly, before we get into all of that, I want to let you all know that I opened up a few more VIP day slots in my calendar. So a couple months ago, I opened this up and now over a dozen people have come out to Vegas to learn how to podcast. So if building a professional, profitable podcast, yes, a podcast that actually pays you, not one that you pay, okay, that if that's something that you want to do, then this is exactly what you've been waiting for. So head over to travischapel.com slash coaching to apply. That's travischapel.com slash coaching. And if you qualify, I will see you out here in Vegas really, really soon. And now here is my conversation with Mark Masia. Mark, what is up? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Hey, Travis. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So look, I know that there's a lot of stuff that we can get into um, here on the show. And uh, you're in one of the fields that I'm most passionate about, especially passionate about learning about and teaching about and helping others understand, which is real estate. And I can't wait to jump into some of that conversation. But first, if you know anything about me, I like to really go way back and build some context just for everybody listening. So take me way back, man. Take me back to, let's say, elementary school, Mark. Like, What were your interests, likes, dislikes? What was what was a day in the life for you back then? <laughs> well, some of it's pretty similar, right? School and all those kind of things. But uh, I, from an early age, I always liked math and uh, computers. And so I had a, always doing things around that. And obviously, in the beginning, it's just kind of playing around doing games or whatever. But I think that led to a lot of my technical competencies today, just kind of still modeling and, and other things that around real estate and finance. And so, so would you, uh, would you say that you were a nerd? I definitely was. It's weird. I was like a, uh, like a, I was like kind of like a both sides, right? So I was like a super nerd. I like definitely loved all the nerdy things a hundred percent. But then I also had a lot of friends because I, I liked being social. So I, I wasn't like the sports jock friend guy, but I was uh, definitely had, you know, and not like millions of friends, but I had enough that I was like, uh, you know, kind of the both sides, like totally opposite people, but kind of in one person. Yeah, I was, I was, I was very similar, actually. Like, you know, love all the nerdy stuff like math and chess and Star Wars. But at the same time, I'd like to play sports and get along with everybody. Just curious. Just curious if you're willing to admit. <laughs> that. Yes, totally. Always. No, <laughs> transparent and very humble. So yes, 100%. Yes. Cool, cool. So heading into like high school, junior high, all that kind of stuff. What was the thing that you had your mindset on? Like what, what was the career path for you? Was it always set before you? Did your parents have, really want you to go to college? Like talk, walk me through that decision. Maybe. Yeah, no. Um, interesting. Yeah. So my well, education, definitely. Yeah. My parents, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse. And so education to them was always tantamount. And like, I would always try to have like jobs on the side and do things to make money. Cause that was always kind of a, a scorecard that I kept was kind of earning, earning an income but they always pushed me to be like, yeah, stop wasting your time. Like you're never going to make a lot of money now. Like you're making money later. Your job is, is a student. So education from a very, very early age was always drilled to be extremely, extremely important. And, you know, I turned out to agree, uh, obviously, but always going to college, that wasn't even really a question. And what I was going to do, I mean, from an early age, my, because my father's a doctor from an early age, I kind of got exposed to that and really wanted to do that. And because I was interested in science and math, it kind of just made sense, you know, that it was like a, a logical progression. Later, we'll get into why that didn't work, I guess, maybe. But essentially, you know, from that early age, I did have, while I also had that, that sciencey nerdy aspect, I, I also did have like an entrepreneurial spirit from the very beginning. I actually started a uh, computer computer support company. So like basically like teaching, I don't want to say old people, like old people, but people much older than me when I was in high school, how to, 
how to use a computer, how to fix their computer or doing stuff like that. And so again, I wasn't allowed to do too, too much crazy stuff because my parents were, you know, kept me focused on school, but to the extent that I could, that was kind of a passion and interest of mine. And, and it's funny, my sister the other day going through a bunch of stuff at our house uh, where we grew up, she found like my original flyer for that business and sent it to me. And I thought that was kind of interesting and timely, you know, going back to high school and still thinking about that kind of stuff. Right. So you always kind of had that itch to do something like that generated money, right? Exactly. Which is weird because like my parents were entrepreneurial in the sense that they started their own medical practice, but not really in the sense that it was a very tried and true, clear path. There wasn't like a lot of deviation from spirit. It wasn't like they were practicing some new kind of medicine or anything crazy like that. They're they're more like business owners rather than like entrepreneurs. Exactly, exactly. And not to not to disparage it. I mean, they, they yeah, did, yeah, no. were amazing people, but just kind of a very different thing. Yeah. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with. Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that that's something that's like in your blood or do you think that's something that's learned through like various experiences and things? This is a conversation that I think a lot of people are having right now is like, can you teach entrepreneurship or do you just have it? And I'm curious to know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. So I joined EO recently, Entrepreneurs Organization. And, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for well over 13 years doing what I'm doing now. So I've had my current business for 13 years. And, you know, I think <laughs> I studied entrepreneurship in college, a lot of different things. So the long-winded answer to your question is, I, I think it's both. Like, I think some people can brute force their way through with like knowledge and make it work really well, because I think there's, there is a tried and true method for making businesses work and not, especially after going through some of the EO stuff or reading some books like Traction or Scaling Up or other things. It's like, there's definitely things that you can do to make it a much more repeatable you know, sort of systematized process. But then there's also a lot of it from a motivational standpoint that I think is kind of just 
ingrained in who you are as a person. So like you can be successful with one or the other, but I think if you don't have that like innate ability, the brute force method, I'm a little biased obviously, cause that, that is me, but, but I think it's probably a lot harder if you're just kind of like going through the motions than if it's like something that you, and I think I learned that most, most poignantly in like 2008 when like all of my friends became quote unquote entrepreneurs. And then after time you've realized which ones had just lost their jobs and were using that as a bridge excuse. <laughs> right. Yeah. Entrepreneurs. Right. Because like, it's kind of like at that time it was kind of like the euphemism for unemployed. So it was funny when I was, I was starting my business, I was actually starting my business and people were like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. You're unemployed. And I was like, well, no, not really. <laughs> no, no, I, I legit am an entrepreneur. Yeah. 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 And they're like, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like 13 years later, they're doubting me, but that's fine. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So let me ask you this then. Do you think that it is in direct correlation, like your, your ability to like bounce back, do the things that most people aren't willing to do. Do you think that's in direct correlation to like picking a path that gets you fired up? Or do you think that those two things are like totally independent of each other? I think I understand. But before I answer it the wrong way, can, can you just expound a little bit on that in terms of... Yeah. So there's a lot of talk going on about like, you have to follow your passion in order to be able to like be successful with it or whatever. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what what you kind of think about that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm torn on that because I agree with both sides in some respects, uh, or I at least see both sides in some respects. And so I think, I think some people use it as like an excuse to not get started, which I think is really frustrating to me personally. Like I, I see that as like kind of a unnecessary roadblock. You know, it's sort of like you read Simon Sinek's why and you're like, oh my God, unless I have my why, like I shouldn't even start this business or do anything and I should just be an employee. And it's like, I think that's wrong personally. Like I think it's, it makes it seem like that's the only way to succeed ever in your whole entire life. And you can't even start, but I think you can also discover your why. And I think you can also in a lot of ways, make your business around your why as it develops. Cause I also think your why changes a lot. So like your passion, my passion 10 years ago, when I started this business is very different than my passion today. And I don't think you know, so the business just like me has to grow and change and be different things, or it has to die and I have to start a new business, which none of those things would be problematic because I'm open to any opportunity or situation that arises as long as it's fulfilling that that goal. But so I think the fact that you're searching for a why and molding your business around that, at least for me personally, again, biased based on my own personal experience. But I think that is my my opinion is that it's not a starting point, but it's definitely a goal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, my buddy David Meltzer says, he believes that basically nobody loves what they do. They just learn to love what they do. And uh, I think some people like tolerate it more. Some people don't tolerate it as much. And But no matter what you do, there's always going to be something about it that doesn't fire you up or get you going. And I think that people use it almost like you were saying as a crutch or as an excuse to not go after what they want because it's like, well, there's this one aspect of this thing that I definitely don't enjoy doing. So that it can't be my passion if I don't enjoy it or whatever. And then it's just like, oh, well, I guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing now until I figure out whatever that magical, mystical thing is that's going to, you know, make my life better. And it's just like, well, eventually you're just going to have to take control, take responsibility, man up and go do something, right? Yeah. I mean, that's life too, right, Travis? I mean, like ultimately, like no one wakes up every single day and is like, this is the best day ever and it's going to be the best day ever. And I can't, you know, each day is better than the last. It's like people that tell you that it, they're blowing smoke, right? Like there's no, everything in like a cycle is like, day has a cycle, your, your happiness has a cycle, like everything. And it's proven. I mean, you can read Sapiens and a bunch of other books that will get into the, the physiology on that that's way above my pay grade. So I think part of it is also, and you mature, right? You, like I said before, like, you know, what was important to me when I was 20, like having a lot of things are not really that important to me anymore, right? It's more about having quality time with family or, or doing cool experiences or other things. And so I think, you know, to say like all of that, 
you know, exists in a bubble and it's like sort of a, this thing you put on a shelf and it's a goal. And then once you get there, everything you're happy and it's over. It's like, that's not realistic. That's not the world anyone lives in. Right. Totally. Totally. So you said something a little bit earlier that I want to ask you about. You said that your passion now is different than it was when you first started your business. Can you tell us kind of what it was when you first got started and then what it's transformed into now? Yeah. I mean, so, some of them are similar, right? Like some of my goals originally were like, I was a bad employee, not like in production. Like I did, I did a really great job. And I think most of my bosses were very happy with what I did, but I was a bad employee because I was really always like, I wouldn't do it this way. And so I would always fight for some, because I, I knew the best way. So I want to do it that way. So some of it was just to get away from people telling me what to do. Like I wanted freedom to kind of be in charge and kind of go the easiest route, make, make more efficient decisions. So some of it was that, and that's still true. Like I still thinking of working for other people makes me want to kill myself. <laughs> What's that like? <laughs> not, uh, and again, not, not for everyone, just for me. Like I'm not saying bad person. if you work for someone else, that's not at all. It. Like it's not a judgment. It's just a personal preference. So I think that still stands, right? Like that freedom, that autonomy, that kind of like flexibility, uh, adventure, I think would be associated with that kind of in my mind. That's all real, right? That's all still true. Like I still discover new stuff every single day and, and decide new things every single day. But I think originally I kind of wanted more of a dictator kind of ship. I didn't frame it that way. Like I'm not a kind of like insane person, but it was more like, I kind of was like, all right, I've worked for a bunch of other people. I don't really want to do that again. And I had always heard like partnership was equivalent to employer type relationships where someone's always kind of making that choice. And then over time, I realized like, I actually also really value like groups. Like I value being a part of something and working together as a team and doing things like that. So I, I think, you know, I actually often call like my investors and things in my business, like my investment family, like I treat them much more like a community of family than I do like customers or, or something more tangentially related to me. And I, and I think that's really important to me as a person. And so from, from a standpoint of like where I started versus where I am now, you know, bringing in more partners, more people that can share the decisions and responsibilities, people that I can collaborate with rather than just being like, okay, this is my will. This is my thought. Let's now make it happen. I mean, obviously there still is a part of me that's that way. I'm not saying like that's not important at some level. Like I do enjoy that part of leadership to some degree, but I also enjoy the, the collaborative nature. And that's something like early on, a lot of people were looking to partner with me and I was like, nope, you're either working for me or you're not part of this thing at all. And that was very rigid and kind of foolish and young. And I think I grew out of that. And, and then there's like a lot of those things, like I did mention the material things, like when you're young and you don't have, you know, as many great relationships or don't focus as much on other things like family and, and friendships, like true quality friendships and those relationships have become much more important. So finding a way to be very, very effective in shorter periods of time where I used to work, you know, 90, hundred hours. Now I try to work more of a 40 hour schedule, but be more productive and sort of just not let those, you know, 12, 14 hour days creep up and, and kind of, you know, hurt my marriage or hurt amount of vacation I take or whatever it is. Yeah. Love the practicality, man. So going back a little bit to more of your story here. So you originally intend to go to college to be a doctor. So where did this all start changing? Like, where did you start? Getting, you know what I mean? Cause yeah, like you go to yeah. be a doctor and now you run a real estate fund. Like, <laughs> yeah, obviously, very, obviously opposite, derailed yeah. at some point. I killed my first patient. And so I decided to <laughs> yeah, right. not be a doctor. No, I'm just kidding. Didn't uh, think it was for me at that point. <laughs> yeah. My, actually the lawsuit made me quit. Yeah. No, uh, um, no, luckily nothing terrible like that. I'm just kidding. I shouldn't joke about that, but yeah, I was a sophomore in college actually. And I was taking, physics and chemistry and 
while I was good at science and, and math and stuff, nothing ever in those categories, especially as the, as the uh, subjects getting got harder, none of them ever came like easy to me. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like I could just walk in and breeze a test. It was always like a lot of studying. I mean, it came easy to me in the sense that I liked it, but not in the sense that I could just always grasp everything right away. And so I was studying for these two big finals in those two classes. And I was like, I'd spent like three full days in the library and I was like miserable, miserable. And my dad was just like, why are you doing this? And I was like, you know, because I want to be a doctor and how can you say that and all this kind of stuff. And he was like, it's not ending anytime soon. Like you're gonna have to do this for like eight or nine more years, you know, every day like this. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I have that in me. (laughs) So it was like, because it's like, I I like working hard, but I felt like it was just like pushing a giant boulder uphill for no reason. You know what I mean? Where at the other side, they were like, okay, now push it back down the hill because the point of it was, you know, like what I'm learning wasn't medicine. It was tangentially, tangentially, tangentially related. I don't really deal well with that. Like learning like I don't deal well with doing things for doing them sake. Like my parents always hated me as a child for doing like they basically if they were like, because I said so, it was definitely not happening, right? If they told me that that was the reason, there's no chance that's happening, right? So they always had to come up with some creative reason why, you know, and for better or worse. I mean, obviously that becomes part of my personality today that that can be difficult to deal with sometimes because if I don't understand the why behind why I have to do something, I generally won't do it. But if it's something I can understand, I I will do it. I think that that's like, it's crazy to me, bro, because a lot of people will be in that position that you were in and never take the time to separate themselves from the situation and ask themselves that question. Like, can I see myself doing this for the next eight or nine years? But they they never ask that. So they just keep doing it. You know what I mean? Like if you you never would have taken that step back and asked yourself that question, then you'd probably be a doctor today, hating life and just like drudging through the monotony of your day to day, just so you can pay off your student loans. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's when you just get locked into these thoughts, these like thought processes. It's true. Know, know yourself, I think is a big part of that, right? I mean, like know who you are and be real with yourself. And like, and like, I don't mean to be flippant. Like, it's not easy. Like, I, I'm not saying like now just having this quick conversation with you, it makes it sound like it would just happen to click. I mean, like none of these things in my life have ever been like super obvious and easy to me. I mean, like it took, it took like literally like crying in the library to be like, oh my God, my friends are all having fun and I hate this and this is miserable and for what and all these things. So it wasn't like it just a light bulb went off and I'm like, I'm a genius. Here's the flux capacitor. It was like, you know, it was a long, hard road, but I think you're right. I mean, having those kind of truth conversations with yourself avoided years and years and years of longer term pain that would have avoided that. You know, it's just like any, any bad relationship. It's like if you get, you know, you're in a marriage and you, you know, it's not working out and you just stay in it, stay in it, stay in it. And then at the end, you're like, I wish I'd done this 10 years ago. Yeah. And then that's when it blows up in your face. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So next part in, you have this conversation with your dad, you start realizing, Hey, this is probably not the direction that I want to go. Did you like change your major? Like what, what was the next step? Yeah, I did actually. Yeah. So good question. I mean, I, I, you know, sophomore in college, at least in my school, you hadn't already declared a major. So I was kind of taking prereqs. So I kind of had to juggle around some things. And because of this change, I ended up, you know, I was too heavy in sciences and other things. So I ended up having to basically go through my entire college career, taking summer school every single year to catch up and do other stuff just so I could graduate on time to change my major. So I changed my major to business. I did uh, information systems, which is kind of like project management for computer, like technological uh, projects and entrepreneurship. So I double majored in both business categories. And again, more logically like aligned with what I was always interested in, right? Computers, math, science kind of stuff, but also the people side and the entrepreneur side of things. So that, that shift was pretty easy and obvious to me once I realized what I didn't want to do. And then no surprise when I aligned, you know, what I enjoyed with what I was doing, you know, I started getting straight A's significantly easier than when I was in pre-med stuff. 
Yeah, totally. So coming out of that, then I know you have, you have two master's degrees, one from New York university, one from George Washington university. Was that basically right after you came out of college or did you work for a little bit and go back? Like what was the reason for going back and getting those masters? Yeah. Again, so education was always drilled in my head and, you know, so st- looking for certifications, looking for things like that to prove that I like knew what I was talking about uh, even early on. And so I actually did a five year masters or five years undergrad masters program combined. So it was like three years of undergrad, two years of master's degree for the first one. So I went straight through on the first master's and then worked for a while and then got my second master's in real estate once I had realized that real estate was what I wanted to do and be. So I'd worked in real estate for, I think, three or four years before I went back to get my real estate master's from NYU. Okay, got it, got it. So now you are running this fund, right? So you have 17 years of real estate investment experience, but you've been running this company for 13 years. So what was that four-year period before you started the company? Yeah, I was like a maniac. I kind of jumped around a lot and did some like crazy... I got myself into some crazy situations that like people with 10 years or 20 years experience may not have been able to have. And a lot of that was, like I said, working 100-hour weeks, doing kind of crazy stuff, having all kinds of certifications, uh, networking the heck out of things. So I kind of put those first... I started working when I was in, in grad school. So I wasn't full time, but I was doing stuff then. But then those four years of, of true employment for others, it was literally like working in international projects, hundreds of millions of dollars of ground up international projects in the Middle East and, you know, in South Korea and all over, as well as like, you know, $500 million ground up projects in Manhattan. So and everything in between, you know, so it's kind of like literally running around like a mad person doing and getting as much exposure and trying to figure out the business as best I can so that I could say, all right, now I'm ready to start my own company. So a lot of arrogance mixed in there in the sense, cause I was younger, it was easier to be like, I can do any of this stuff. I can build a $500 million building all myself with no huge company to support me. It's like, yeah, I know the steps, but it doesn't mean I have all those resources. <laughs> right, right out. But, but I was exposed to some really amazing things and some really amazing people. And so I was very, very fortunate to kind of pack a ton of experience into a very short period of time. All right, everybody, this episode of the show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, which lets you fill your summer with books like Never Eat Alone, The One Thing, Give and Take, And if you're looking for a specific recommendation from me, I would start with Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harbecker. Audible members get a credit every month, good for any audiobook in their store, regardless of price, and two Audible originals, plus unused credits always roll over. If you don't like an audiobook, exchange it totally for free, plus your audiobooks are yours to keep forever, even if you cancel. That's right, there are no commitments you can cancel anytime. Audible is a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, sunbathing on the beach or poolside, running, road tripping, enjoying uh, just any any downtime that you have outdoors and much, much more. Listen anytime, anywhere and never lose your spot when you switch devices. This is literally one of my favorite ways to consume content, guys. I am not just saying that and I know that you're going to enjoy it as well. So just visit audible.com slash network or text network to 500-500 to get started today. That's audible.com slash network. 
What's up, everyone? Just wanted to take a quick second and give a shout out to my favorite podcasting app, Himalaya. If you're not listening to podcasts on this new app, you're definitely missing out. It's like a social media app, but for podcast listeners. Follow your go-to shows, like and comment on your favorite episodes, and download professionally curated playlists made just for you. So head on over to your app store or Google Play store and download Himalaya today and thank me later. How valuable do you think your those four years of experience were comparatively to what you learned in college? Well, interesting. I mean, I, I have a really, like, I, I think people a lot of times short circuit things and assume one without the other. So like, and I'm certainly guilty of this myself. Like a lot of times I'll be like, X, Y, Z is the way you should go. And it's like, it's so obvious and logical to me. And I, I say like, I don't understand why you don't understand this, whoever I'm giving advice to. And then I realize like, well, it's because I have this graduate degree. And so I learned all these subjects that like I totally forgot about, like that that matters. Or, you know, I had this work experience. So it's like, it's very hard to decouple what you actually know and how much that actually matters. You know what I mean? Because like in retrospect, did I need a master's degree in real estate? Like, did that change my entire life and education? On an educational level, Probably not. But if I didn't have that, would I be able to say and do the things that I'm able to do now? Probably not also, right? Because some of it is also just like self-worth or however you want to look at that, right? Like like the I've given myself permission now because I have a master's degree to be to be okay to be the smartest person in the room or the most talkative person in the room or whatever the situation I need to be in. I have that confidence now because I have that behind me. So did I need it? No, I, I don't think so. But did I need it in respect to all those things I just mentioned? Yeah, right. Because I would always be like, well, you know, this person has a real estate master's and I don't, so they know more than me or whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. So it was more just like a way for you to hack your own confidence. Exactly. Because I always had the young, the young issue, right? So like I, I had a short, short career working for other people. I started my company very young, but did have a lot of genuinely real crazy experience that most of my bosses didn't even have when I was working for other people. So I had to kind of put extra certifications, extra kind of things behind my name to kind of validate that even to other people. So not just perceived to myself, but also to other people. So I think that was the way I did it. Not, not the only way, but the way that it handled it for me. Yeah. And for anybody listening right now, what is your company and what do you guys do? Yeah. So the company is Massey Development. So Real Creative, my last name plus <laughs> Real Estate Development, which is what it is. And we we essentially are real estate strategists and execution for large family offices. So we go to large family offices and uh, create an investment plan for them and then implement that investment plan solely around real estate. So we don't do like kind of you know financial planning for like stocks and bonds and other things, but kind of in a real estate perspective. And then we execute and run those transactions for them. So it's kind of a, a, a fully delivered turnkey solution for families with, you know, kind of $10 million and up, but usually more hundred and two hundred million million and up. And then we also do a similar thing, as you mentioned with the fund, we're now doing a similar thing for the regular investors. So kind of just general high net worth and also just average, you know, people who want to get invested. We, you know, have a fund that's available for everyone and available for everyone to invest in. And it gives kind of the people the ability to invest in commercial real estate transactions without having the knowledge or ability or millions of dollars to get that all kind of off the ground running. So it's kind of like what, you know, I originally imagined the product for my friends and family who want to invest in real estate, but have full-time jobs doing whatever they're doing and doing it very successfully, right? Because there's all those kind of programs and investments opportunities for people to do like flip your own house, but you have to do all the work and quit your job and do all these kind of things. And none of them want to do that, right? Like they love their job or they are tied to their job or they're making a ton of money at their job or their company or whatever it is. And they don't want to do real estate, but they are interested in real estate. They like real estate. They want to get exposure to it and they want to do it with an expert group. And that's what 
we offer them. What does a typical deal look like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've executed stuff all over the map. I mean, we've done tons of ground up multifamily construction, you know, anywhere from $10 million projects to hundreds of millions of dollars of projects. And then we also do a lot of retail and medical office. So retail is one of those sectors where everybody kind of hates it. We believe Amazon is killing all retail and that's where we find a lot of opportunity these days. So for those who are able to see through the thesis of, you know, this is a old story that's being repeated over and over again for generations. Like it used to be catalog sales. We're putting business out and then it was big box retailers are putting businesses out and now it's Amazon is putting it's it's the same story over and over again and what you find is that like there's always the next reason that this is going to fail but it never really does like it changes things are different but it's not gone there's not nobody shopping in the stores or doing social things or whatever so retail is a good sector for us that we find a lot of opportunity although most average investors are not that interested because they see the headlines every day on CNBC and all these other places that are sort of fear-mongering and then we also do a lot of medical office just because of the long-term trends in medical spending. So we see kind of, you know, long-term value there. Plus I have a lot of uh, friends and family that are in the medical community. So we have kind of a, a tie to that. You know, my, my wife's a doctor, my dad's a doctor, as I mentioned, and have a lot of other doctors in the family. So, And are you guys looking just for new development or do you buy old projects and renovate and, and turn them around and stuff like that too? Yeah, we do a little bit of everything. So we do ground up development, we do renovation value add, and then we do just buy stabilized stuff. I mean, a lot of what we do for the family offices, the larger investors, is more stabilized transactions because they're much more worried about asset protection than they are necessarily about asset growth. So by buying, you know, kind of more stable, better quality stuff in better locations, most of that's not going to be value add or development type stuff. It's going to be more, you know, just kind of main and main, great location, great property. But then for some of the, the individuals who are much more like, risk-taking. We'll do more development and, and uh, renovation and stuff like that to, to hit the returns that they're looking because, you know, because they're looking to grow more of their wealth. You know, we find a lot of our tech investors are that way, right? Like they made a bunch of money doing something in a startup and now they're like, okay, I want to put that to work and keep it growing. So that's, that's what they usually like. And when you go in and develop a lot of these newer projects, you're developing them for the purpose, like for the buy and hold or the, the hold aspect, right? You're not selling off the projects they're developing. Again, we do both. I mean, you know, for the individuals, they usually want more of a three to five year hold. Like that's kind of the traditional market. But for the families, again, I mean, some of the stuff we're building and buying for them is 30 plus year hold. Like they're basically never selling it. They're giving it to their great grandkids or something like that. Got it. Cool. And are you doing anything, anything differently coming up on the next couple of years, expecting any sort of market correction? Are you going to be doing anything differently in terms of investment strategy? Yeah. I mean, so we're probably doing fewer transactions than, than we ever have uh, going forward, just because we're being a little bit more selective. But, you know, I find, <laughs> I find changing strategy in some respects is very much like trying to time the market. And it's virtually impossible to know whether the crash is going to happen tomorrow or three years from now, five years from now. And so being early is very, is no different perception than being wrong. And so you've got those kind of problems. You've got having too much cash, having too little cash. Basically like what I always tell people is like, if you, if you have a hundred million dollars that you won in the lottery or your family member died and gave you today, I'd say slow down your investment. But if you're like most of our investors where whatever amount they're looking to invest, they have this year and they have every year for the next hundred years, just dollar cost average it basically. Right. So if you're, if you're a super high net worth family, they may say we got 10 million dollars a year this year and every year for the next 10 years. So like, I'm not going to sit on 20 million, 30 million, 40 million dollars sitting in our bank. Just waiting. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the same thing with you, if you have a 50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars, you want to invest this year and you have it next year and the year after that, same thing, just different scale, different person, different, I mean, same problem. Right. So we find that to be, yeah, we're not being crazy. We're not taking the most risk we've ever taken. We're not underwriting the most growth we've ever seen. Like we're being reasonable. We're being more risk averse and aware of cycles that they exist. But most of how we're dealing with that is we're financing long, we're business planning longer. So we're saying like, if the, if the downturn happens tomorrow or it happens five years from now, we're still okay because we're not saying, you know, we're not financing on a two-year schedule where we're going to have a gun to our head to refinance at the bottom of the market or something like that. So I think tweaks around what we're doing, but not changes, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Love it. That's one huge reason why I love real estate so much because it always seems like if you buy it right, the long term is always going to be good no matter what. So I'm curious to know, man, You just doing the quick math, like you were four years working for other people. You were in college for a few years, did a couple of masters. So you're like late 20s when you started your company. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Was it difficult to start convincing some of these high net worth families like to give you millions of dollars to start these real estate development projects and things like, cause I mean, you're, you're not really going off of anybody else's track record at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so part of what I'm learning in like EO and some of these other groups where they're kind of putting more structure to it is like, I've often made things significantly harder than they needed to be. So by not taking partnerships with gray haired people, like that made my life exponentially harder, right? And I kind of mentioned that in the intro. Yeah, so I prior to 2008, we found very easy to raise capital because everybody was doing stupid, crazy things. Like it was kind of the, the good old days. But then post 2008, it became the opposite, right? It became no matter how much track record, no matter how amazing of a deal, I almost couldn't get it done no matter what, right? So it became much more important when I, when it, when people were looking at things with more scrutiny. So you know, 2008, 2011 was like a really hard road for us to get deals done, which is unfortunate because that was the best time to do deals. So we did deals. We just didn't do as many as we would have liked to have done or should have done uh, because of that. So I'd say, yeah, I mean, it definitely was a huge issue. And looking back, going back, I would have probably been much better off taking a, a gray-haired partner or doing some other way to figure it out. Yeah. So there's a lot of younger people that listen to this show, people mid to late twenties, early thirties. What would be your advice to them starting out in regards to being able to step into a certain level of confidence that allows you to do business on a mass scale like that? Yeah. I mean, there's kind of three, three ways, I think. I mean, I think one is um, just muscle through it and get your first deal done. And that's what a lot of people do. I think that's what we did. And that was really, really hard. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but it is possible. I don't want to dissuade people from that, like that, that head down, just kind of grill, grind through it. You know, it will eventually work. I think a more logical kind of quicker shortcut approach, which I wish I had taken would be either find a partner or a mentor who can kind of push you through that and lend you some experience or connections or like I said, gray hair or track record or whatever it is that you don't have kind of like go out and I don't want to say buy it like you're giving them a flat fee, but just kind of like figure out what their motivation would be and what they can benefit from and do it. And we're doing this a lot now with our company. Like we'll joint venture with a lot of people who have a few of the things put together, but don't have the money or don't have the balance sheet or don't have the track record or don't have whatever, but they have an amazing deal tied up or, or whatever. So I think look for the third would be kind of like joint venture partner or something along those lines. I guess the other would be education. I mean, I used education as, as a pretty good proxy for experience because by having a master's degree, especially when I went to school wasn't as common as it is today. I mean, for God's sakes, now I get people that are my mentees that are undergrad real estate majors, right? And that wasn't even a choice when I was younger, you know? So 
I think there are education proxy does work if that's how you're wired. Like if you're wired to believe that the educational process will lead you into uh, uh, real world success, then, then that was the way. And that's how I was wired. So that also helped, right? Yeah, totally, totally. So 13 years now later, and one and a half billion dollars in real estate transactions later, what's been your like biggest biggest lesson that you've learned along the way? Oh, man. <laughs> I think a lot of it is really like from an emotional standpoint. I mean, I've learned tons of investment lessons and I've learned tons of other things. But I think whether you're doing a $100,000 house flip or whether you're doing a billion dollar ground up transaction, like real estate, the, the functions of it aren't that hard or that different. I mean, there's obviously tons of different problems and they scale up and whatever. But it's more about like, what do you want? Because I think, you know, sometimes what we found is that some of these bigger transactions, while they stroke your ego, and, you know, they're great, and they're great for my bio and things like that, we made less money on some of those deals, right? Because then we did on some of the smaller deals, or we had less fun, or they were more frustrating, or they took freaking forever, or whatever the case may be. So I think the biggest thing that I've learned is just like, kind of what I said at the intro, which I didn't know so much as a kid, although I did have some, I've always been pretty introspective, but being more about like what, like the why question we were talking about, like think about what you want and then go after that because really none of it matters. Like you could do a hundred thousand dollar house flip and be the happiest person ever if that's what your goal is versus that hundred thousand dollar house flipper who's psyched at doing that. And then just like scales up to doing multifamily because they think that's the next step and then hates their life. Like that's not a good path. Right. But that's what a lot of people do. They go, Oh, the next thing is this. The next thing is that. So I got to do it. I think I've been more focused on like, do I want to do that? Like, do I want to do another hundred million dollar project or would I be better off doing five, you know, $5 million projects or whatever? Yeah. Love that. Such great advice. So look, man, we come down towards the end of the conversation and this is the build your network podcast. So I would be remiss if we did not at least touch on this and chat about it for a quick second. So this is the question that I ask every guest that comes on the show, just to kind of get this conversation headed in the right direction here. Do you believe that who, you know, or what you know is more important and why? Yeah, I mean, who you know definitely makes your life easier, faster, more successful overall, I think. Without a good network, without good support, without good mentors, without all those who's. I'm not going to say you can't get anywhere. I, I'm sure people can find examples of people who don't have those things, but I can't think of any. So I think the who for sure. Now, who you know can also screw you, right? If you know the wrong people and they're holding you back, that can also really hurt you. So, you know, you do have to be careful. But no, I think, yeah, who, who you know is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about what you just said. So, because I talk a lot about environment because I think our environment shapes us. And I think most people agree with me on that. But where I lose some people is when I tell them that they shape their environment. So ultimately, we shape us. Like if our environment shapes us and we shape our environment, then we're the ones in control of allowing certain things, circumstances, people to shape us into who we are. So can you talk about a couple of different ways that you have been able to shape your environment to be best conducive for you to reach your potential? Yeah. I mean, I think starting my company was a good example, right? Like I decided very early on that I wasn't going to work with consultants or lawyers or partners or anybody that I didn't like. Like I, I don't have to be best friends with them and hang out and grab beers every day, but I have to like them, right? I have to respect them. I have to think highly of them. So I never hire somebody just because they're amazing at their job. If they're jerks, I don't want to deal with them, right? And I've not bought deals because even though it's an amazing real estate transaction, if the guy or gal is a complete nightmare to work with, life's too short, in my opinion, right? I, I don't need the next $100 million transaction if it's going to be, you know, with the worst person ever that I've ever dealt with, because it's just too much effort. So I think that's like, you know, kind of expunging my life, both socially, you know, personally, and, and business wise from people that I just don't like. 
and then have a negative, you know, energy and a negative kind of everything. That's been the be- the biggest game changer for me because I, I am, I'm a generally very positive, upbeat, happy person. But just like everyone else, I can become depressed or get upset about things if I'm surrounded by that all the time. It's just almost impossible, in my opinion, not to, right? If you're just surrounded by horrible things or people or whatever all the time, your upbeat energy can only beat that down so long. Exactly. Like even if you can do it, it's so draining that you don't have time to like put energy into projects that are pushing you forward. Cause I had this conversation with a couple of people that like, they genuinely feel bad, right? Like they want everybody in their life that they've known forever to be just as successful as they are. So they, they never like draw clear lines and they never, you know, break away from those people. And it's just like, it's just, it's, it's almost like that scene. I don't know if you, I remember the animated movie Hercules where Hercules is like trying to get out of like the, the pit of souls or whatever that Haiti him in right and all the people are like dragging him down like that's like the mental picture that i get when i I talk to somebody that's like they're doing well they're doing really like they're almost at that next level they're they're almost out of the pit right but like they don't want to say goodbye to all these people so they just let them just be dragged down dragged down it's just like man like you don't have to cut people off like you don't have to be a jerk right but like you do need to understand that you need to conserve your energy and put it toward positive things i agree yeah, no, Travis, I think that's an excellent point. I think like what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is it's like a balance, right? Like you don't have to be, you know, the heartless, you know, terrible person that that, that is going to Hades just because you, you don't want to have these people around in your life. But you can't help everybody. You can't, you can lead a horse to water. All those kind of things, right, are, are all true. They're, they're cliche because they're true, really, you know, and it's, I think it's, it's a balance between how much you engage with those people or who you cut out. But but certainly to the extent that they're not people you already have relationships with, cutting out as many negative, bad, hold you back kind of people, the better, I think. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You got to get used to giving hand up, not hand out, right? Like, I think that's the clear line is people are just like, they just, just people attach to them like leeches and just suck out all the value. And it's just like, man chill, chill for a second, get away from everybody. Well, and a lot of those people, it's never going to be enough, right? I mean, a lot of those, like, it's one thing if you were like, oh, I can help these people. And even if with the hand up, help out our discussion, it's like, even if you give them a a help up or a hand up, right? It's like, they're eventually going to need another hand up and another hand up some people like, and so you got to kind of recognize, you know, who are the people that are taking things and running with it versus who are the people that are just literally always sucking you dry as you're saying, which I agree with. Yeah, man. So tell us a story really quickly about like a connection or a person opportunity, something that something good that happened in your life that you can trace back to a connection that you had. So like opportunity that came across a deal that came across, uh, maybe money, financial, or maybe just like relationally, whatever that all stemmed back to a connection that you had with another person. Yeah. I mean, so, so many that is kind of difficult, but I think, uh, so my, one of the first jobs that I got was working for a family office and that, you know, I, learned and he gave me the job basically because he liked me and my mentor at the time introduced me to him as a warm introduction and so obviously that helped and then I sealed the deal with kind of my sales pitch to him about why why hire me even though I knew nothing and so that really snowballed my entire career like without that like literally like very 
few things in my life you can point to like one thing. Meeting my wife was one example, but this in a business world, meeting Ed, who's my current partner and the first family office that I ever worked for, changed my entire trajectory, right? Because he gave me opportunities that allowed me to learn things that, like I said, would have taken me decades to learn other places because there would have been a compartmentalization, staffing, doing other things, whatever, that would have not allowed me to learn that. So that coupled with, you know, years later when we reconnected and we started working together, you know, he helped me get other family offices. He helped me, you know, his track record helped me get bigger deals, all kinds of things that just kind of like would have literally, I don't want to say never, never happened, but like would have taken me decades longer to make happen if ever. Like if I didn't meet somebody like him, it probably never would have happened. I love that story, man, because that's the whole point that I try to bring out with everything that I do with this podcast and with everything else that I'm putting out, all the content that I put out there is simply to show people that it can shorten the runway, right? So like I have that who or what conversation with a lot of different people, especially now that it's become kind of, like, kind of like a staple question on the show. And that's why I always pick who, because I just think that it provides like an exponential amount of growth. Like it allows you to cut the lines, you know, skip rungs on the ladder, shorten the runway, however you want to say it. Like you could have figured it out, right? Like your what could have brought you to the point that you're at today, but who knows how long that would have taken. Having access to that information and having access to those connections and opportunities, that's what enables you to get it done in a much more condensed period of time. Um, and success loves speed. And I'm a big believer in that. So um, yeah, man, that's, that's huge. I love that. So running out of time here. So let's go ahead and move on to the last segment, something I like to call the random round, just a few quick random questions with some quick random answers. Ready? Yes, sir. What profession other than your own, do you think it would be fun to attempt? Teacher. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? <laughs> Easy one for me. Uh, Warren Buffett. He's in my opinion, like everything that I want to be in a person, like he's a amazing philanthropist. He's an amazing teacher. He's an amazing investor. He's an amazing kind of just everything I've ever known about him or heard or read about him. is just kind of like exactly what I want to be. How do you like to consume content, books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? I love it all, but I think I'm much more auditory in terms of you know learning and, and doing. So I think audiobooks or podcasts are kind of my biggest... Uh, over the last five years, that's pretty been my biggest, yeah. What would be one or two of those that you would recommend, either podcasts or audiobooks? The most recent audiobook that I like pretty much changed my life was uh, Ray Dalio's Principles and um, Gina Wickman's Traction. I think those are two, at least from an entrepreneurial standpoint. I mean, you can get a lot out of it regardless of whether you're an entrepreneur, but like specifically, and Ray Dalio's Principles, like certainly it's got life and business in there. So I think those are kind of, because it's a framework for how to think about your life. And that's pretty powerful to me because it makes it more logical. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Pretty basic. I mean, 5am workout every day, uh, shower, breakfast, uh, and then basically audiobook, like I mentioned, kind of, you know, I use audiobook while I run, but also on the way to work and just kind of reset and then just do the most important thing I can first. So kind of figure out what I am and what, what it is. And then while I've got the time and most productive part of my brain working, you know, get that done first. What is your go-to pump-up song? <laughs> Recently, it's been uh, ACDC's Back in Black or Mr. Brownstone by Guns N' Roses. What is something that you are just not very good at? Organized sports, pretty much all of them. <laughs> <laughs> As we get everything wrapped up here, Mark, what is one place online where we are going to be able to find you the most? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, just under my name, Mark Massia. Uh, but I also uh, you know, have 
I love visual stuff. So I'm pretty big on Instagram as well. Massia Dev uh, is my name there. Cool. So anything that you want to learn about Mark, go check him out on LinkedIn, check him out on Instagram. And then if you are an investor, either accredited or non-accredited, be sure to look out for Mark's new fund that they have coming out, um, which basically allows anybody to jump in to the pot and get uh, shares of everything that they have going on over there at Massia Development. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show today, brother. I had a fantastic time talking with you. Thanks for having me, Travis. It was great. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about how we've been able to get some of the guests to come on the show, I've created a totally free resource called Meet Your Hero. So if you'd like to connect with people you respect and admire that are difficult to reach, you're going to want to go to travischapel.com hero to take action and start that training today. Have a wonderful rest of your day and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.